Hi there, and welcome to Climbing Consulting with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. Today, we have another first for the podcast. It's the first round two interview. In this episode, I have Don Morehouse back on the show to talk about the importance of high-performing teams and answer the questions you've been dying to ask him. If you've listened to his first interview, you'll know that he credits much of his success with being exposed to and then developing high-performing teams. In our first interview, we covered a huge amount of ground, but we didn't get a chance to cover this specific topic. So I invited Dom back on the show to talk about why high-performing teams are so important and how you can develop one in your business, practice area, or project team. In today's episode, we go into detail on why high-performing teams are critical to your business success. We discuss the academic research that Dom conducted that proves this out, as well as how you can develop your own high-performing team utilizing Dom's team-to-tribe model. Following this, we pick up on some of the questions that you sent in for Dom to answer, including Dom's advice to his 30-year-old self, which may not be quite what you expected, and what Dom's morning routine looks like, among other great questions. It was really good to catch up with Dom again, and I hope you enjoy this as much as our first conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dom Morehouse. Hi, Dom, and welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, great to see you back, Nick. You haven't brought the weather this time, though, so uh, yeah. No, you would have thought broken. later in the year, but yeah, we're so back here at Dom's house, and it's not quite as quite as sunny outside, but I'm sure it will be a, as good an interview as the last one. So we're back here because one of the things that we mentioned a few times, or you mentioned a few times during the last catch-up, was around high-performing teams. And it's it's something that's obviously been critical to your success and how you built Morehouse and some of the things you're doing now. But we just, we ran out of time last time to actually talk about it. So Dom very kindly agreed to a round two where we are today going to delve into high-performing teams and Dom's work on developing that at Morehouse and Dom's research on that. And I won't say too much more on that. I'll let, let Dom take that. But firstly, what have you been up to? It's been a few months since I last saw you. I know Method Grid was, was going well, was in a free beta. How are things there? Uh, no, well, thanks for asking, Nick. So I've, I think when you came here last time, that was a sort of still fair to say a bit of a side of the desk project, as uh, you would say. And uh, in the last few months, it's definitely taken a, a step forward. So, you know, effectively, when we last spoke, it was, I guess, still in the public beta phase. We we're still essentially validating whether there was a product there that, you know, we could take to market. And the, the update would be to say, you know, we've been hugely uh, pleased with how it's gone. And, you know, we now have over 250 accounts, organizations on the product, getting very positive feedback. So, We've actually been working hard in recent weeks to um, develop and turn on the, uh, the, the the paywall. So I think if this podcast is going out shortly, it will actually be behind a uh, behind a paywall. And you know we are going into a concerted effort to you know to to market the product further and get it out there. Brilliant. Well, great to hear that it's been going so well, and you're you're taking that step into putting the paywall up and taking it from, like you say, a sort of side of desk into you know the next phase. I mean, if people people didn't have a chance and missed out on getting signed up, because I think you you offered a year free if they signed up before the the paywall went up. But if people are listening, why should they go on it? Yeah, no, actually, and, and, and thank you because I probably haven't <laughs> remotely explained what it is. So Method Grid, and we touched on it, I think very briefly, didn't we, in our last chat, was essentially. It came out of the fact that you know, from a, a you know many many conversations I've had with specifically professional service leaders, you know, one key component of value is the you know the sort of systematic capturing structuring of uh, methodology and intellectual property, and it's such a such a key component. And why is that? Well, 
you know, firstly ensures you're standardizing your delivery. Um, Jane is sort of working similarly to John. And, you know, that means a huge amount in terms of the client's value of your business. You know, consistency is a really, really key aspect. It also means you can be much more structured about your own internal professional development. It helps join up, you know, people from a knowledge management perspective as well. So that was a key comp- logic into the design of Method Grid is that at a granular level, you could essentially tag expertise across the platform. And, you know, if you don't have the answer or you're not an expert in a particular area, you always know which colleague, you know, who, who is. And then another key aspect, which was really, you know, from my own experience at Morehouse was key, was it helps you win work. If you're a small specialist boutique player, you're always going to get the big guys saying, oh, you know, that's a, that's a competitive area to us. And to a degree, it's difficult to explain to prospect clients that, um, you know, you have that genuine specialism and, and often above where a general multi-provider player is going to be. Demonstrating it via deep, deep toolboxes and methodology sets is the way you do that. And it was it was absolutely key to how we won a lot of work at Morehouse because as soon as we opened up our toolbox, essentially a prospect was looking at, in our instance, something that would spend many, many years, you know, building. And on the other hand, you know, you'd be lucky if you had one or two slide decks. So being able to demonstrate, you know, and and have that deep um, tool, you know, toolbox is, is, is so, so key to winning work. So for all of those key reasons, having sort of structured in IP is key. But what I sort of realized is there isn't really a platform out there that helps particularly a sort of SME player capture that. You know, you spend a lot of time developing the interface. So, you know, I guess that was the starting hypothesis. You know, could we build a platform that really enables? Method Grid was over a couple of years now of development, a number of iterations and a brilliant beta community has got to a place we're really super excited by. Yeah, and it uh, it goes to, it goes to market as we, as we speak. Brilliant. And like you say, it's obviously key, that knowledge management side and showing showing the depth of your knowledge and what you can bring vital at Morehouse and, and great to hear that others are leveraging that through Method Grid. And just the last piece, because we've not touched on it, if someone wants to go and have a look, what is the, have you decided on the the paywall? How much, how much am I paying if I'm an SME and want to go and use it? So you find it at methodgrid.com and uh, we'll go out on multiple currencies and I, I guess UK and US prices, well, UK prices roughly, we're looking at sort of an £8.50 per user per month. Uh, price point, so I guess uh, circa ten, you know, ten dollars per u- per user per month. We, we've tested that, we've surveyed that. That feels like it's down the lower end of the SaaS kind of product, you know, range typically. But uh, for us, the, the, the Method Grid really works when you have everybody on the platform, and you know, essentially you're tagging everybody's expertise across an organization, across a team. So we wanted to go down to the to the lower end of that spectrum, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how that works as we uh, as we head off into uh, the next phase. Brilliant. Well, I'll include the link to the website in the show notes. If you want to go and check it out, Dom says methodgrid.com. And yeah, I look forward to, I'm sure we'll catch up again soon and look forward to hearing how that goes. So bringing us back to the core element for today, why don't we start with actually what is a a high-performing team for you? We we talked about high-performing teams being critical in the last episode. I think why don't we just start there with what is a high-performance team and, and why is it so important? In terms of what it is, I'm, I'm going to actually defer the, the answer to that question, Nick, because I think actually, you, you know, what I want to try and do is get beyond the sort of fairly, uh, the sort of glib one-line summaries. And actually, it does need a sort of degree of unpacking to, to fully define that. And I think actually what we'll do through this conversation is we'll explore the different, you know, dimensions and layers to that. So hopefully, certainly by the end of this conversation, that will become clearer. The, the why it's important, again, you know, deserves, I guess, a little bit of, of, of layering because, you know, at one end, it's, it's sort of the bleeding obvious. And 
to try and get beyond that, I would say, well, it's, it's, in some ways, you know, I, I kind of tell you my own personal journey was coming out of Morehouse and just assuming, I guess, that most people ran organizations in the way that Morehouse ran itself. And it, it was only by dint of, I guess, meeting a, a load of other businesses over the years after, and clearly primarily in the sort of professional services world, and, and getting privileged access into a lot of those organizations that I really, really was struck by the fact that you're invariably talking to very, very, you know, bright, driven, you know, intelligent leaders. And invariably, there's a there's a pretty sound plan, strategy in place. But what became increasingly clear to me was that the real decider as to whether that was an organization that was going to just bob along, fairly mediocre kind of path, or whether it was genuinely a growing, scaling business, was whether there was a high-performing team in place that could execute those plans. And I think I just have, I needed to see that almost myself and also to sort of note the fact that it was by almost rare exception that it was a growing scaling business. And when you got under the hood of those businesses, again, it wasn't because they had a genius stratagem that was kind of uniquely different. It was they just had a, a completely different quality of, 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 of teamship. And it's, it reinforced clearly something that I felt was a fairly intuitive starting hypothesis. But I, that for me is why it's so key to business fundamentally, because you can't prosecute plans otherwise. I mean, if you were to get a little bit more forensic, I think you might say in professional services space, it is all about people. And if you boil that question down, you know, what is it a, what is a business leader seeking to do? Well, fundamentally to maximize the performance of their team and their employees. And what does that mean? Well, employee performance is probably made up of a number of aspects. I mean, as economists would say, human capital, you know, experience and education and, and, and skill sets and so forth. Clearly traits and people carry different traits, but fundamentally motivation. And for me, and I'm sort of jumping ahead of myself a little bit because it's, it's what the research goes into, but if you can improve inherent levels of motivation, you're going to massively improve levels of employee performance, and you're going to massively, therefore, improve the effectiveness of your business. So getting to the nub of what motivates people to work, as, as I'm about to come on to, you know, lives or dies on whether you perceive or, or, and actually are in a high-performing team. And you've, you've teed it up nicely, and maybe I should have started there, is, is this isn't just something that, this isn't just a soundbite that you like to say, you know, you should have a high-performing team. You've done a quite an in-depth piece of research on this, and maybe why don't we start with the background to that research, what led to you doing it, and then, as you say, we can talk about some of those components that builds to the the sort of finale of the high performing team. No, sure. So, I, I may have touched on this, Nick, when we when we spoke last time. But by uh, to honest, more um, serendipity, I kind of ended up on, on an open university second degree in, in in my latter years, which was evolved into a PPE degree. So I started off. I just loved philosophy. Did some philosophy modules. Realized that I could, you know, stay on the track, and found myself concluding a PPE degree last year. Well, the final module was an economics module. And the final aspect of that module was a self-directed project and some fairly dry, you know, economic areas. And I managed to uh, convince my tutor that I, I really wanted to, to do that piece of research into this aspect of what genuinely motivates people to, to work, uh, something I'm really interested in, and particularly a hypothesis I have that the explanatory component of membership of a high-performing team goes way beyond most neoclassical or even you know modern behaviorist theories as to what drives that. Took some convincing, um, but I, I successfully managed to convince him that you know it would certainly light my passion if I could put it on that topic. And so that's that. That was the sort of starting point. And then the the research is picking up this point really, which is 
real fascination with what motivates people to work. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of neoclassical economic theory out there. And fundamentally, historically, you pay people more, they work harder would be the, the simplification of it. Of course, with modern sort of more behaviorist theories that softened and people understand a lot more now about the, the sort of intrinsic sides of motivation. And so what I set out to do, and uh, you'll have to kind of uh, listen a warning, really, I'm going to say something that will then deserve a little bit of uh, uh, explanation, but was a what's called a uh, least squares uh, statistical regression on an econometric model. So there you go. That's the soundbite for, for this podcast. So essentially what that was seeking to do was to build a model that could potentially explain what motivates people at work and I mean, essentially, statistical regression, all you're seeking to do is to understand the strength of an explanatory relationship and whether, you know, statistically it, it stands up, whether there's actually whether there's actually a genuine relationship there or not. So what I needed to do was to to, to have enough data to have, you know, to be able to do that. I needed to, um, you know, I needed to get a, a, a lot. And I, I, partly my tutor was quite concerned, actually, that I was going to set off and, 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 you know, fall over. But I, I was really lucky, I guess, you know, using my own network, I managed to get um, just shy of 400 returns to a fairly complex questionnaire. And that was largely US and UK. And it was largely, again, by dint of my network, it was largely in the professional services, you know, primary sector space. So I think that's quite an important caveat up front. But the model that I sought to explore and a starting hypothesis is, okay, so on, on one hand, on, on one side, it's called the sort of dependent variable, and I labeled it E, is effort and motivation. It's such a, such an important component of ultimately, you know, performance and therefore business success. And just to be clear, that's employees. So how motivated am I and how much effort am I going to put into your thing? Yes, absolutely. And... Unsurprisingly, it's also completely correlate with how like how long am I likely to be around in this organisation as well? Was completely uh, correlate. So that was E, and if you like, that's on the left hand side of the equation. That's the dependent variables. So then I put up a starting hypothesis, at least to test the strength of the relationships, explanatory relationships to that. And I put up initially four, and and if you can look at this both as extrinsic and intrinsic factors, and fixed and contingent factors. So if you take extrinsic fixed broadly anyway wages and that's you know clearly taking classical you know neoclassical economics and i labeled that one w the next one was ex- extrinsic but contingent so to a degree some elements of bonus would be that performance bonus but also a whole load of other aspects that are contingent on your situation so you know whether you're getting great holidays and health benefits and great training etc cetera, etc cetera. and that was x in the formula <laughs> And, and then the next one is intrinsic. And intrinsic fixed is just, you know, how inherently motivated are you as an individual? It doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing or what team you're in, what organization you work for. Just, you know, you you as Nick, what's your intrinsic level of motivation? Call that one Y. And then the final one, which was the area I was super interested in, is membership of a high-performing team. I labeled that Z. And then clearly uh, what I did do was I, I was consistent in how each was measured so I could understand the relative port of each across that set. Mm-hmm. And, and Z was made up with a whole load. Well, look, they all were essentially made up of a whole load of derivative questions. And Z particularly, I'd built a model, I call it the team to try model, which in some ways the question, the questionee might not have even understood that they were talking about a team. It just, it, you know, came at it from a number of questions, but ultimately it kind of produced a, for me, what is a, a very good summary team score. So that, that, that was the input hypothesis and essentially, you know, grabbed all of those questionnaires and fed them back in 
to the statistical sort of processor, if you like. And the first really super fascinating result was that essentially W and X, if you remember, wages and extrinsic benefits, and could be effectively kicked out. They had no explanatory contribution to make to what motivates people. And I should, I should say here, actually, that there was complete normal distribution in the sort of effort levels. You know, there were people that are down at the one, two, and three. This wasn't just talking to a super motivated set. It was, just, you know, effectively normally distributed. It was, it was across pretty much all ages of, you know, of the workplace. It was, it, was, it was gender, you know, neutral. And yeah, it just kicked out. It just, from a statistical perspective, n- nothing to contribute. And I kind of, you know, my, my hunch was, it would certainly be weak relative to other aspects. I was really struck by the fact it had genuinely, you know, no statistical correlate. Just for my listeners' benefit, you might hear that and think suddenly, well, why are consultants getting paid as much as they are? Was was there any minimum threshold to that? So is it that after a certain level, that variable disappears? Or did it just not matter at all? No, it's a great question. So a, a really intelligent corollary question to that is, well, where, where's W and X gone? Because clearly they have a role to play when, you, when you're hiring people. Yeah? So if, I, if you go back to where I started and saying the obsession about employee performance, and it's broadly made up of human capital, personal traits, and motivation, you know, enormous additive, if you want to bring in people to your organization with the requisite levels of human capital and the requisite levels of the positive traits you seek, you you essentially have to pay fair market price. All that this is saying is once somebody's crossed the gate and they're in your team, in relative to motivation, wages and bonuses actually have very little to say. Does that make sense? Yeah. So actually, it wasn't part of your research, but during the recruitment conversation, five, 10 grand, whatever it was, might might have some bearing. But once you're in, the suggestion that work harder for a 10 grand pay rise might not. Is totally, that, yeah. yeah, totally. And I think, you know, fundamentally, in, in terms of that starting conversation about, you know, almost refereeing people into the firm, it's got to be perceived as a fair trade at that point. If it isn't perceived as fair, then I think that will start to sort of unwind down the line. But as long as you've paid fair remuneration for the kind of talent and the human capital that you seek, the conversation about motivation and effort down the line is has moved way beyond remuneration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so going back to, I guess, this iteration here, W and X have been kicked out. And I then spent essentially days playing. And it literally, you are sort of tweaking and iterating a model to try and understand, well, what is the best explanation for E? You know, I've collected a load of questions. I've still got, in this instance, Y and Z left. But is there, is there anything else I asked that can fill a hole in it and different forms of the, the equation? And essentially just, it's, it's almost a creative exercise at this point, just looked at multiple, multiple different explanations and eventually landed on one which was really striking when I got there. It was, it was a really powerful explanation of, of E. In statistic sort of parlance, it's called an R squared of a model is the degree to which the independent variables explain the dependent variable and it had a really, really high R squared particularly so for what is essentially a behavioral, non-physical kind of world. And it came down to three variables. I won't um, I won't bore your listeners with the absolute numeric equation. Well, I'll put it in the, uh, I was going to put say, I'll, I'll put the paper in the show notes. So if yeah. anyone, if we do have any listeners who really are keen on the stats, yeah. I know you go into it at length in the paper. Absolutely. And of course, you can you know take the, uh, take the academic paper as well as the business one. So the, the, the simple version of that is essentially it came down to three variables. And I'll give you the, 
the rough proportionality as well. So in, in ascending order of significance, and I'll give you the rough sort of relative quantum as it were, the first one was, and it was a question I asked, if I'm honest, slightly accidentally, but as I was playing around and inserted it, I realized it had a, you know, it was playing a key role, was to what degree do you find your work intellectually stimulating? So that variable, and I, let's just call it IS now, intellectually stimulating, was a key. It was absolutely key in explaining E, and it probably in relative terms was about one-sixth of the explanatory force. So that's a really interesting area. The next one was was this remaining variable that was in the starting model, which was, if you remember, why intrinsic motivation? So to what degree are you intrinsically motivated? And by its very definition, the firm you work in can't change that. It's just, it's just you know, fundamentally who, who you are. Well, that, that is- and motivation, this is probably a question some of my listeners are thinking, motivation in what sense? So I'm intrinsically motivated to, is that I'm motivated to climb to make partner, I'm motivated to help the firm, is there a... No, in a, in a, in a far broader life-affirming way. So I think the questions that came at that were just, you know, essentially, to what degree can you self-motivate, be it in a pursuit of knowledge, in a pursuit of fitness, in a pursuit of career goals, you know, pursuit of relationships, to what degree am I self-motivated? And again, it, what was really interesting, and you know, because I've had some challenge back when people have heard this as to, well, aren't you, you, maybe you're just talking to a very motivated cohort and, you know, they're all up that upper end, anyway. No, again, you know, when I analyzed that data, it was almost a normal distribution curve as to where people were on the sort of self-motivation scale. There are many that would self, and I should say that you know, the, the questionnaire was anonymous and there was no reason why, you know, it should have, should have had any sort of bias in that regard. But, and it proved that it, that it didn't in so much as, you know, there were scores of people that essentially self-volunteering themselves to be ones, twos, you know, I'm struggling to get out of bed type folk. But some of those were actually in their contingent workplace, highly motivated for other reasons that had sort of mm. pulled them up, as it were. But yeah, so this variable was key, why, and it, it had about one third of the relative contribution. And, and there's some important implications of that for for uh, business leaders and employers as well. And then the final bit, and clearly, you know, it was the hypothesis and re- reinforced my intuition was, was this high-performing team piece. And, you know, if you rem- remember, I labeled that Z, that was absolutely key. And that was roughly 50% of the answer. Again, without boring the uh, less technical reader, that was a uh, quadratic equation, which means, you know, it wasn't linear, i.e. actually you get the biggest gain at the early stages of that sort of Z score. You know, if you go from, if you take somebody from a poor, poor team and put them in a pretty good team, you know, you get massive amounts of contribution to the effort score at the final sort of harder to reach sort of echelons of that. You, you, the gain in E is less, you know, it sort of it, it marginally comes lesser, but fundamentally Z is absolutely critical. And presumably the, and I think we'll come on to it with actually how you build that, but one of the other conclusions is that if you are, it's let's say you're inheriting a team. So if you're, I know you're passionate about helping entrepreneurs build their firms, but let's say you've joined a firm and you've inherited a practice area where there's a large amount of or a lack of internal motivation, actually building the high performance element can go some way to begin to outweigh that and make a make that transition. Is that is is that a correct sort of inference? I mean Totally, you know, and back to this point of, uh, by definition, you can only do so much, well, you, can't, you, can, you can do nothing actually with people's intrinsic motivation, it is what mm-hmm. it is, but you can still take a relatively uh, disparate group on, you know, on that score and move it to a very collective overall high E score with just an absolute fixation on 
building a high-performing team. And I'll give you a really actually interesting side sort of story. I I was in the States recently with a great organization. Actually, I'm sort of privileged to be part of, it's part of the PI group. And we run a, well, we run a number of services, but one of the services is uh, essentially development of high-performing teams. And I I won't name the company other than say it was a brilliant, brilliant group and um, very uh, prestigious drinks brand, global drinks brand, but we were dealing with a North American team. Fantastic group of people. 30 of us and uh, three facilitators from the PI group. And we gave that questionnaire to every one of those of their team before they arrived. And we then got the average score. Essentially, we derived the, uh, the, from, from the independent variables, i.e. asking them those questions, how intrinsically motivated are you? How intellectually stimulating is you know, your work and all of the components of that high-performing team score? And then we calculated what their average team-based e-score would be just on those derivative inputs we then asked them separately what their uh, motivation was and averaged that as well and then revealed it on the first day of the event and there was 0.1 decimal place difference between what our model hypothesized from the input and what actually they could tell us as the output and just you know how 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 really fascinating is that that you can genuinely you know clearly it's statistics you need a certain amount of data to sort of validate it there's always going to be outliers but at a certain level, and that was a team of 30, you, I, I can tell you how motivated that group are by asking them those three input questions. Wow. And that was a big, because I think that's the you know, the other question that some of my listeners might have is, does this equation vary dependent on size of firm? Does, does it hold true for a firm of 50, but not so true for a firm of 500? It sounds like that was a bigger company you were working with there. Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. You know, and there's a whole load of secondary studies that would be great to do off the back of this. So I find some time, but um, you know, in, in some ways, I, I mean, I think my my starting hypothesis would be it doesn't vary massively mm. with the size. You know, actually, what what does change is the size of the firm means you're less likely to feel part of the high performing team in a lot of instances, and therefore, actually, probably less motivated. So, as opposed to whether the the size of the firm is 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 uh, corrupt in that model, I think the size of the firm would probably be corrupt. The Z score, which is corrupting the E score, that you know, mm. that'll be interesting to, to look yeah. at. Yeah, and obviously the sort of Z score, high performing teams came out as the the number one for you, and that's where I think it'd be really interesting to come on to the next sort of evolution of okay, if I if I buy this model and I've seen the research, I agree that's the key area to go after. How do I do it? That's the hopefully the question that my listeners have got or people building their firms or building a practice area. I do also want to touch on to those touch on for those in a practice area, but I think maybe we do that afterwards. How do I do it? Or how do I know where I'm even starting on that? No, no, great question. And I think, you know, if we've still got listeners with us, Nick, after that. <laughs> I think we're done for stats now. Tangent aren't we? So... off into the stats world. I apologize <laughs> to everybody. Um, then you know that is clearly the the hugely intelligent corollary kind of feedback follow on so uh, the the model i used and i think massively validated with the results of this was something we call the team to tribe model and it has six, six layers to it which are broadly hierarchical i.e to go into layer two you really need to have pretty solid layer one it's not completely linear it's not like you can't do some of this in sequence but broadly speaking there's a hierarchical logic so it kind of makes sense to to step up on on that model because that you know that's the nub of your question so the layer one we call it the right stuff. And actually, when I first built this model, I called it talent. And then it sort of sat with me for a while and it didn't sit very comfortably because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's far more than talent. So the right stuff is definitely a better, you know, better nomenclature. So what do we mean by that? Well, fundamentally, regardless of what team you're building, you need somebody who's technically proficient in what you do or has the 
potential and aptitude to become very quickly technically proficient. So, you know, back to the Royal Marines, you know, and we're looking for, you know, for people that can you know, shoot their weapon over 300 meters pretty accurately, can run with heavy loads and get from A to B and then still shoot their weapon. You, you, can, you can strip that down into the component parts. Rugby team, you need somebody that can, you know, throw a ball accurately and da 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 da. You can again, you can break that down into a myriad of sub skills, sub talents, and you know, professional services. Again, we've all built competency frameworks. You can look at the kind of analytical communication, you know, personal traits that a you know good management consultant or good professional services, you know, agent has. So clearly, technical proficiency, but as importantly, attitudinally, they can do and they have that proclivity to being a team player and a proclivity to a sort of a mental agility and, and sort of positivity. So, you know, we call it simply can do, can do, can do technically, can do sort of attitude. And so the first layer is that there's no, there's, you know, as Jim Connors, wasn't it, said, fairly cliched sort of getting people on the bus point. There's no point really talking about teamship until you've, you've got that constituent membership in place. So fundamentally, and you go especially so now, go back to this point that you know in, we know intrinsic motivation is such an important component of ultimately motivation. If you have the luxury of building a firm or team from scratch, then filtering people in is the most important thing you you will do. And actually, one of the massively key things you're trying to filter in is just that intrinsic motivation. You know, really, really exploring that because again, by definition, you can't change it. Uh, how how do, I, I want to come back to the. The relative importance, but how do you do that? Because you know, we, we've all been in interviews, and you sort of get asked about a time you fail. You get asked about a time you worked in a team. How do you, as a hiring manager or hiring business owner, actually push through what can sometimes be quite a contrived interview, or everyone's got their sort of best persona on? I'm not. I'm not going to claim to have the absolute sort of panacea to this because I mean, it's a key challenge, isn't it? And it's got sort of nuances to it. So you're totally right. It's, it's it's easily blagged as a sort of standard interview. So I guess what you're seeking to do is, I would say, really look beyond the sort of immediate professional world. I mean, I think you you learn a lot more about people in terms of what they do outside of work and things they're proud of that's not necessarily in the professional space. So invariably, what people have done outside of that is is, is a really interesting lens into their motivation. So, but again, I think that's not necessarily a novel answer. Lots of people do do that. I think, again, like a lot of actual traits that you're refereeing in, you, you need to sort of accept that, that there should be a, quite a lengthy probation period, because I think it is easy to be blagged, actually, in, in, in sort of short-term selection processes. So at the very least, there's a sort of a mitigation process of having six months, if you can if you can extend it to that far, to sort of genuinely explore somebody's motivation. I would also say, you know, from our, again, my own experience, we used to have lots of experiential events where people are coming together and mixing in, in, in sort of ways that kind of enabled that to be seen probably much faster than might have been the case in an ordinary sort of working life. Yeah, so no, 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 no summary, simple answer, but exploring aspects outside of the working life, a lengthy probation to sort of really validate it. You know, people can't blag after a certain period of time, can they? And as much of a different experiential mix in that working life to, to look at it as well. I can't remember who, who the quote's from, but it's one of those, again, business cliches of you should judge people by how they treat the people they can't get anything from. So how they treat the receptionist or the secretaries as a away i don't know if that's one you've come no, across totally, or... no totally and i think we might have even touched on it briefly nick I, I totally agree with that it's a slightly different point though i mean for me that was just basic human courtesies mm. and actually you know i i want to work with people who i just think are decent human beings as opposed to motivation per se but uh, yeah i think it's a it's a brilliant test actually i always used to run down and speak to our receptionist after an interview and just say that how did they you know how did they treat you mm. take somebody's to, you know, senior hires, take them to lunch, you know, actually I'm more interested in how they deal with the waiter than I am with me. Mm. 
So no, I, I totally, totally endorse that also. I think it's a slightly different piece. Sure, no, really, I think another interview tip for people listening. But to that point around, you know, you've got the right stuff and in terms of capability, but then in terms of out, sort of outlook and mindset, which is more important? You know, if I've got, and we'll do the sort of polar opposites and you can find the gray in between. If I've got someone who's phenomenal at consulting, doing the do, but is a rubbish team player, and I've got someone who is average to, they, they meet the minimum, but they are your sort of minimum threshold in terms of capability, but they're a fantastic team player. Which one are you more likely to bring through the door? And feel free to take make up as many people in the middle to sort of balance that. Every day, Nick, the latter team player who could be starting off with that sort of you know minimum skill set, but I guess with the caveat that you can see you can see the potential for that aptitude to grow. I mean, if you you know again if you want to build a premium firm, you know you need people that've got more than minimum sort of technical proficiency, but. Every day, if you spot somebody with the right attitude, proclivity to being in a you know high performing team, you know super motivated, over over the you know the technical kind of A star. I mean, it's a, it's the classic Jack Welsh kind of matrix point. This isn't it, where you know if you remember the story early days in GE, he, he very uh, publicly sort of fired a number of his senior team who were the top sales folk in GE, but just in no way carried the values of you know their organisation. And he's, you know, he famously got up on the stage. He said, "Look, I'm not sort of letting these guys go because they needed more time on the golf course with their families. Let's be really open about it. They didn't align with the values of this organisation." It's so destructive when you get folk who are not playing that game, and actually super destructive when actually they've got the kind of card to wave of no, but I'm technically brilliant because it you know makes it more challenging decisions, doesn't it, for the uh, for the leaders to deal with? But um, you know, every day. High, high, high attitude score. The ability to be proficiently technical, uh, technically, you know, proficient is is absolutely where you want to look. And it feels like, especially with the Jack Welsh example, if someone's listening to this and actually they've been landed on a and projects might be slightly different, but let's say they've been landed in a practice area and they've taken on a practice area. It sounds like the same is true there. Of assess what you've got in front of you, assess the people on the bus, and quickly axe the ones who don't fit the team have that internal motivation to be with the team, even if they are your best guy at whatever sort of capability it is you have. Totally. And, you know, I can, uh, I guess with the um, benefit of, of a bit of, you know, time tracking, I can look back to a number of early junior colleagues at Morehouse who were brilliant team players, brilliant individuals, so many positive traits, but, you know, weren't necessarily the most skilled consultant in, in you know, in early, in early months. And actually, when you see that, what you kind of, you know, what good firms hopefully do is say, like, we really need to coach and, and help, you know, the technical side of this. And, you know, there might be bespoke coaching. We certainly did that in a number of instances and, and specific sort of training intervention. And I can't tell you how many of those individuals I can look back at now, 10, 15 years on, and they're some of the best consultants you'd ever, you'd ever see. And they, they just didn't have the full toolbox early on, but they were absolutely brilliant grade A team players from the from the get-go, that that was the key key determinant. Uh, and so we've got the right people on the bus to start with. What if I if I'm listening to this and I I feel I'm comfortable there? What what's sort of what's next in the model? Yeah. So the next next layer, Nick, is what we call clarity. And effectively, you, you've got the, you've got the right people now, but you know they need to know what to do. So it's a sort of it's the plan, it's the communication of the vision of the organisation where you're heading, right down to the silver thread that goes from that sort of corporate vision all the way down to you know what's the individual sort of activity that's going to it's going to take me there and again you know for most organizations that's that's broadly in place i would say it's not unusual to have sight of some some sort of coherent plan and i think if you're early doors in this then all i'm emphasizing here and this will be no surprise i've said it you know many times before is 
if you haven't got that clear plan and, and and I think you know beyond plan actually sort of plan often gets sort of misinterpreted as a sort of just a you know, big statement of budget you know and what I mean here is a strategy really a strategy that you can see the thinking behind strategic analysis that's gone all the way into the kind of the so what and therefore what's the set of coherent actions we as an organization are going to take forward and it's articulated and everybody can see that reference point so yeah make sure you've got that basic artifact in place and people are aware of it it's communicated so that's the next layer and I know it's worth saying, if you haven't listened to our last episode, I know you, you went into detail on planning and values. So I don't, I don't think we should revisit that, but do go listen to Dom's last interview because we cover that in depth there. The next layer, Nick, would be empowerment effectively. So again, you've got the right people, they know what to do, you know, allow them to do it, enable them to do it. And there's, there's many organisations that have got actually fantastic team members and actually, to be fair, have a reasonably coherent plan. But it's so stiflingly difficult to actually execute on it. You know, it's either a large organization that's sort of got bureaucratically out of control, it's kind of unvisited governance and, and organizational structures, or actually you can have relatively small business where there's just a fairly autocratic founder who just won't won't pull it, him or her out of the, the detail and won't let people get on with it. So that, you know, there's a, an expression in, or a, more than an expression, there's sort of a philosophy almost in the forces called mission command, which is essentially... Powering people, they, they, everyone needs to know what the sort of intent is. And in, a, in the military, we used to talk about two layers up from where you're working, where your operational level is. You understand exactly what the mission is and what's sort of aiming to be achieved, and you're placing it beyond the sort of de minimis kind of constraining parameters to, as required you know, in the military context just to, to be safe and, and not to wander inside anybody else's area. And in a business perspective, just to mitigate commercial risk. But beyond the minimum of those parameters, let people get on with doing you know, what you're asking them to do. Don't, don't prescribe the how to them. Just provide clarity as to the outcomes sought, the context in which you seek it, and allow the talent and, and the uh, creativity of your colleagues to sort of pull off you know, the gap in between. And that's mm. where you see huge step up in, in sort of team performance. So emp- empowerment would be the next the layer. How do I, or how does how does anyone test that? I think, like like you said, with some of the pieces when we spoke last time, at the time you were you were talking around sort of the balance between personal life and work life, and actually you made the point that when you're prior to it, it's very easy to see it as a risk, but once you're in it, it's very hard to see that balance, and you need other people to flag if that balance is being sort of eroded. Taking that metaphor and bringing it to here. If I am leading a firm, how can I test to see whether I might think that everyone's fully empowered, but how can I validate that? How can I make sure that actually, yes, the guys on the ground do feel they have the empowerment to do what they they do successfully? I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's a bit of a sort of clip answer, but I would frankly just ask folk, if you built the right kind of cultural firm where people are very comfortable speaking truth to the uh, to the sort of leadership team, which is uh, clearly prerequisite for this, then... I, I think if you just ask folk that you you get the right you get the right answer. I think if, you know from a you know business leader's perspective, in some ways, it's it's invariably the case that you can do. And I'm pausing here because there's actually a bit of a nuance because you know on one level, you know, great firms what they do do is they codify and they standardise and they have prescribed sort of checklists for aspects. We should unpack this maybe in a slightly slower time over another question. But but on another hand, you know, you are leaving huge amounts to in the moment creativity. And I think most leaders 
need to kind of expect more and, and, and kind of pull back from that latter part of this equation and almost, as I say, just experiment, just give minimum sort of parameter to something. Again, as long as, you know, you're not, well, and, and, you know, you can, and you can also take measured risk. I mean, I'll give you an example where I think we touched on it in the last podcast, but when I ran a internal program to develop our internal sales capability, we decided very deliberately to let everybody have a, have a go at that. And if, if, if they so were so self-motivated to do that, regardless of grade. And of course that came with risk because you know, I had fairly junior colleagues and out in the marketplace talking to prospect clients and not really knowing what they were going to be saying. Another firm might have wanted to have totally supervise that. So of course, you know, we knew that there would be a few trips and a few stumbles, but in terms of the net outcome, massive, you know, massive sort of benefit in that instance, you know, just to our sort of revenue growth. So I guess what I'm saying in a long-winded way is another way of discovering it is by incrementally pulling back because it's invariably the case that you need to pull back as opposed to put more stricture in place. Because if you've genuinely put the right people on the team, that you, you've you've filtered people in who are by their nature seeking that, seeking to fill those sort of those those gaps and, and take on increasing autonomy. That's quite an interest. I think that's a a really interesting point around as well the the layering. So if I've I think I've got the right people on. You know, they're team players. They're they're great at what they do. How often or how do you have to revisit that as as you evolve through this model? So, did you maybe at Morehouse or when you've you've seen this elsewhere found that as you've increased empowerment, some people they might be great team players, they might have the technical skills, but actually they really floundered when they were given less direction or less um, less restriction, I guess you'd say. I mean, how, how, did you, how do you have to revisit each stage as you layer on top another level of the model? So I would say you're constantly monitoring that. And to a degree at a sort of macro level, there's a certain point, certainly from my experience, where you've coalesced around such a sort of a set of traits and values and principles that it, that it almost self-referees. So to, to a degree... Whilst there's constant sort of maintenance and monitoring of that, it's it's almost a it's a team wide endeavour. So the leader per se doesn't necessarily need to be doing it all the time. You've built a construct that's sort of doing it by its very nature. But then, of course, I think where you're going as well is every individual is completely con- different, and, and there's completely contingent sort of uh, variables for everybody. So you might have a junior person who just yeah needs a lot of coaching. You talked earlier about some of those individuals, and what you're not therefore saying is oh, you know, you've, you've, you've not grasped this autonomy, you know, you, you were given this ability to achieve this outcome and you're, you're not, you know, you're not jumping into this sort of arena and executing, you know, in those instances, you know, that is, that's, that's where you have a master apprentice grade hierarchy to sort of mentor and coach people through. But I think once people then build their technical inventory and they build their confidence that personal autonomy bit is not something you need to ever be stifling. If if you see that it's lacking, you know, I think you're pulling people into into that uh, mindset. Okay, so it's the it's it's almost the coaching people to if they're maybe less familiar with it from previous organisations, helping them understand and like you say, coaching them through to be able to fulfil that element of their role. So we've we've now built. So we're now at that level three with empowerment. Well, I've got my teams going out. They're, they're feeling confident. To I've given them the why they're doing the how, what what do I, I mean, that's an area that a lot of organizations don't get to alone, but let's say I'm there. What what do I go next? How can I build on that further? 
So next layer, and we're starting to probably get into the layers now, which are more challenging to articulate, and it's uh, more um, ethereal in a way. But mm. uh, layer four, we you know we call it alignment. So you've got the right people; they know what to do; they're enabled to do it. Layer four is they believe it's the right thing to do, and you now go into a completely different level of psychological contract engagement, in so much as genuinely the sort of stated values of an organization, a team, the purpose of that organization are, are you know, totally aligned to, to personal values. And of course, therefore, that then takes you up a step in terms of your, your commitment to that. You, you know, referencing, again, the Royal Marines, you know, there's a huge sense of honor working for an organization like that. Clearly, you know, that is a collective of people that aren't there because of the pay package, I can tell you that for sure. But they're therefore really very, very, very deep sort of principle, you know, principle-led reasons. Similarly, in the commercial world, you know, there are businesses where you can, you know, you can much more align to. I, I give you actually a little side story. I, you know, acquaintance of mine I spoke to years ago, and he's a very capable guy, senior, you know, executive, and very, you know, very proficient guy. And I was sort of talking to him about motivation. I was, you know, how how would you, you know, how would you describe your motivation? So, well, you know, it's um, it's probably seven out of ten. You know, if I had to score, very proud guy, family to feed. You know, there's some inherent motivators there. And I said knowing probably the answer. I said, well, why are you not an eight or a nine or a 10 out of 10? And he works for British American Tobacco. So the, the answer as to why he's not an eight or a nine out of 10 is because fundamentally, that's a bit of a right-field example to illustrate, because the purpose of that organization, it's difficult to throw yourself behind clearly, you know, 100%. And a lot of people wouldn't even, I guess, want to work in that kind of organization. So the alignment to the beyond the kind of rhetoric, beyond the espoused values, but the the genuine values of an organization, if they coalesce with the personal values, the closer that becomes, that's that's essentially level four. And it, it is something I know we, we sort of spoke briefly about in the last interview, but I think worth touching on again in, in the context of building a high-performing team. And, and this model is the alignment, how that, how the values to which you align evolve with the firm. So, you know, you mentioned in the last interview that you with Morehouse did an exercise where you actually went back and said, look, these are what Dom said. Do we still agree with that? Is that something that through empowerment happens naturally? Is that still, is that almost the transition point, the the verification and where needed evolution of values from three to four? Or is is that just something that, that maybe worked for, for yourself and Morehouse, but might not be the same for everyone? I think my answer to that is, and again, we touched on it in the first podcast that when you start out, you know, typically just you know, having a conversation with yourself, yeah, and you, I put down values that I knew were really important to me. And I guess, and I seem to remember you asked the question, Nick, that as soon as there was a sense of um, uh, you know, a, a team, that then made sense to check in on that conversation. And, you know, there was some, there was some sort of shaping, not, not radical, you know, clearly it's, it's not, it's not going to be radical. It's, it's more of a smoothing of the edges. And I think thereafter, you, you you want to do that pretty judiciously because if they're genuinely deep values and principles, you know, they they sort of do stand the test of time. And it's certainly not an exercise you want to be sort of three quarter saying, right, guys, have we got the right values? <laughs> I think there is a moment early, early on in a kind of team company formation where you, you check in on that. If you're making it the sort of the annual exercise and if the whole things get thrown out and reinvented, then you know, you probably haven't you probably haven't sort of landed on the, the right set. I'm just coming back to in my head the the difference between the the owner versus the practice lead, and I think the empowerment piece. I you can build that empowerment, so you can build in your practice area or project team. I mean, it's worth touching on how 
there will probably be a lot of people listening to this who are maybe running projects but not businesses or, or practices. It, just as a sort of slight tangent, is this equally as applicable in, say I'm taking on a delivery project of 50 to 100 people or maybe 20, you know, is this equally applicable there or is it worth sort of highlighting at this point that it's more focused on firm growth than it is, say, project delivery? So I think the model is relevant everywhere because, I mean, the brutal reality is it's probably more likely to be the case you've got a fait accompli, here's your train set, you know, try and steer it <laughs> as best you can. All I would say is, if you take yourself through that model, you know, there's many places where you can make an impact, a positive impact, regardless of whether it's fait accompli. But the brutal reality is the first layer, probably the most important layer, certainly on the hierarchical build is, you know, whether that's the right group. And, and clearly, if you can't change constituent membership, you have got some massive constraints as to how great a team that's going to be. Notwithstanding, you've got the ability, if you can't change membership, to at least get more out of that group than would otherwise be the case behaving in different different ways and even with the with the membership no ability to change the membership at all completely fettered in that regard you can you can hugely signal emphasize provide the lead example of of the behavioral tenets required particularly around the right attitude the can-do attitude such that some people can adjust their behaviors again you won't change the spots of the proverbial leopard but you know you can shift some people that are sort of maybe in that malleable zone and of course you can improve the clarity of the plan of course you can improve sort of layers of empowerment and of course you can enhance the sort of the values of that organization which again will buoy up others so yeah it's not without its constraint clearly by definition but it's not it doesn't mean the model's of no relevance and that i think is quite a key point because i'm sure and I've been in organizations like this, I'm sure you have, and on projects where because maybe the, the right stuff isn't on the bus to start with, people sort of give up and not bother. But I think, as you've, you've highlighted, the, it sounds like the, the people on the bus gives you the potential value, and it's up to you then utilizing some of these things. We're talking about some of the examples you just gave to, to maximize that. So let's just say you might have a project team that can only ever get to a 6 out of 10 from an E perspective, but they could be at a 2 to start with. So getting them to a six, you've trebled the motivation there. And But if you've got your own people and your own team, you might be able to get the right stuff that give you a 10. No, totally. I mean, and in some ways, again, particularly, uh, going, again, technical uh, warning, uh, you remember it was a quadratic function, the sort of Z scores it contributed mm. to E, but notwithstanding, you know, and it's the classic sort of marginal 1% that we, we hear so much about that even those small gains, and if it were, as I said, broadly speaking, Z's contributing... 50% to that E, so let's just say, you know, zero to five. If you move a team from a three and a half to a four in the commercial world, you know, that that can absolutely be the delta between you and and, and sort of 60% of your competition. It's it's giving you that extra capacity to work, you know, on the business as opposed to, uh, you know, just in it the whole time, you know, instead of just kind of... And, and, and actually for professional services, this is really salient because one of the really key distinguishing features is Lots of firms are doing the best they can for their current set of clients. The firms that are growing and successful is they're doing both that. They're doing that, delighting their current clients, whilst also finding the sort of marginal time to work on the business, growing capabilities, building new assets that take the firm to the next level. And they're doing that continuously as a, as a concurrent activity. So you just eke out that little bit of extra motivation, you know, and your Z score could be the component of it. That's the difference between a mediocre firm and one that's building capabilities to grow. Re really useful. And I think that point around the quadratic function, I 
for those who are less stat savvy, and I've, yeah, I'll, fr- I'll frankly include myself in that, econometrics was something I, I haven't done for about 10 years. But that core point of, because of the shape of the function, a small amount at the early phase can actually have a bigger impact than later on. So doing a little will have a larger impact if you have a, a really unmotivated team than if you're trying to get the one percenters and you're sort of the top of the top, you know, the, the Royal Marines, the Olympians. It will have some impact, but it's a lot less and a lot harder to get. But right at the start, if you've got a basket case of a project, doing some of these things can have a huge impact relative to the effort involved. Perfectly put, Nick. <laughs> Maybe I should go back to stats, Tom. <laughs> uh, so, because I want to, I'm, I'm very conscious that those who are listening and those who have, have stuck with us through through the stats and my my bad fudge of summarizing stats probably want to know, okay, so they've got the alignments, done that element. And it, I guess one one side point to that, how much does that play a part in the, the first phase? I know we've touched quite a bit of the, for the last 10 minutes on getting the right stuff, but how much... Is that an evolution versus a check at the front door? No, again, spot on question in so much as, you know, trying to emphasize these layers that sort of have some hierarchical build, but they're not completely, you know, distinct. And that values alignment piece is clearly something you're both as an employer, as a firm refereeing, and I guess, you know, as individuals are constantly refereeing when they make their career decisions. Yeah, And we touched on this again, didn't we, in the first podcast. I think the louder companies are with very proud values and principles, the better, because actually you're helping people decide whether it's the right organization for for them uh, fundamentally. And you want to think of it almost as much as putting people off who won't enjoy working in your firm as much as, uh, you know, attracting people that that, that do. So they're completely linked. You you need to really project those values and principles very, very loudly. So... We're we're approaching tribe. We're at four, so we're You're getting close. Yeah, I don't I don't know if there's something in between team and tribe, but <laughs> um, we're we're getting there. So, what is it that takes a firm from from your research and sort of your own experience? So, maybe I've got there and I'm empowered. I think my team understand the values. They're aligned. How do I make that move from a bunch of people who work together to that that tribe mentality? So the the final two layers, Nick, and I, let me let me probably talk to both at the same time. Is what we've called, well, layer five is a sort of a center of, of, of passion. Again, the team, um, they can do, they can do, they know what to do, they're allowed and able to do, they believe it's the right thing to do. Now they're at a point there where they would, would love to do. It's, it's, it's a genuine passion. It's a place where you count your colleagues as friends, the sort of, you know, the social world sort of bleeds into the, into the working world. You genuinely look forward to, to, to going to work. And you, 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 you call, you know, colleagues as very young. Um, close people in your life. So I'll come back to how you create some of that or how you get there. But just to conclude this sort of model, the layer six is what we call togetherness. And and this is a really difficult one to measure because it is almost an emotive state. And I think probably most people in their working lives would be lucky to get to this point probably more than two or three times at most. And it's a place where Togetherness, I would say that the very top, and this is the sort of the tribe definitely uh, places where you have a sense without arrogance or hubris, but a sense of because of the collective brethren and, and, and the colleagues you share that anything together is possible. And it, you know, I say it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a difficult deft thing to articulate in some ways because it is an arrogance. It's, it's just this unbelievable sense of confidence that's not 
either ill-founded that whatever it is, if I've got this sort of set of talent and this kind of collective team on my shoulders, we're going to achieve it. Again, you know, I'm very fortunate, as, as, as we talked on before, you know, if I go back to my sort of Royal Marines sort of endeavor, definitely that, you know, times 10 and kind of, I think probably all of us individually would have a sense of how did I find myself here with the talent that's on my shoulder. And But if we're going to go over that hill, good luck with the other side of that hill because I wouldn't want to face us type, mm. type of attitude. With my own business, we used to joke, uh, but I don't think it was uh, totally ill-founded that if you'd have taken us out of professional services or program management and dropped us into another kind of industry, give us three, six months to learn our way and find out the strategic sort of drivers of that industry, I think we would have pretty much got to, to, to be playing at the top quite quickly. It was that sense of struth with this group of people. It's the, the world's proverbial oyster. Did you ever dabble with trying something else? Was there ever, uh... <laughs> Just uh, you know, started off a restaurant. No, we, uh, <laughs> no, we didn't. Actually, interesting, you, you, uh, you, you interviewed Simon Dennis a while back, didn't you? Yeah, yeah they've, they've, uh, I think they've got a great team over there and they're um, like dabbling with an incubator. And I can understand why. In some Doing ways. some really good things with it as yeah, well. Yeah, and you know, again, I think it's a really interesting model because I think uh, particularly if your, your space is... Um, transformation you know you know how to execute by dint of your professional service yeah i know it, it, it sort of speaks to that kind of flavor so in terms of what you do i mean again this is really difficult stuff because it's absolutely higher echelon there's no you know there's no simple answer i think the sort of the passion layer it's almost about an inner brand it's it, it, it's almost you know there's a set of stuff that's created or the environment that just states this stuff and stuff can be artifacts stories traditions totems that essentially celebrate your inner brand. And it's done not because you frankly care if the outside world can see it. It's, this is not brand building in the commercial, in the in the traditional sort of marketeering sense of the word. It's, it's about an inner brand that you just as a collective celebrate and and, and love. Can you, 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 know, you mentioned artifacts, totem. can you give some examples maybe from Morehouse or, or elsewhere? What, what are those sort of things? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, and I'm sort of, I pause because I, what I don't want people to think is, oh, if I also do this you know we've jumped to layer five it's yeah it's more the sort of the end artifact of of a of a, of a sort of emotional state in a way but i mean it, we had huge amounts of sort of crazy sort of you know items that i guess carried the brand you know everything from we used to have baby mugs so everybody everyone in the office had a mug with us as a with our, with our baby photos on to morehouse pajamas to you know morehouse calendars to top trump cards to da, 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 da. so there was all of these crazy sort of just artifacts. I think more importantly would be just all the stories and traditions. You know, we would, I talked about before, you know, the annual wind up or the quarterly escapes mm. or the first Wednesday of every month, Purple Wednesdays, you know, with different events and the band that would play at the Christmas party. It, it goes on. And all, all I say, again, I'm, it's not these it's list of yeah. stuff. It's the fact that you've created a place where people celebrate and enjoy and love the fact they're part of a community and, you know, they're, they're developing ongoing stuff that celebrates it and perpetuates it. It's, it's worth, and I, I think it is correct, but just to fact check, that those were things your team created. It's not that the Morehouse marketing department decided we'd have totally. Purple Wednesdays. Yeah, totally. And in fact, actually, we used to, we had a, I guess, we, a small team and it was almost a sort of, its remit was creative chaos in a way. It was like, you know, just, you can facilitate this. We don't really... Want to, we don't. We certainly don't want to prescribe it. I mean, just don't do anything that sort of <laughs> damages our reputation if it ever gets out. But just you know, have fun and 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 keep that sort of inner brand alive. So there was, there was almost a 
I guess a deliberate effort to kind of stimulate it, but mm. the outputs were just completely, uh, yeah, serendipitous. And then the final, final layer, Nick, and it, you've heard me talk about this before, but you get there through essentially time-based, trust-bound, collective sort of experience. And and trust actually is worth saying. I think trust comes from people being fairly exposed on that journey. You know, people have been stripped down, not in a deliberately negative way, but just because of, you know, you've done such extreme stuff and you've been together so long that, people have fallen over and tripped and stumbled and other people have picked them up you know people have been exposed and because there's not a huge culture of arrogance you know people have revealed you know where their where their weak areas are you know it's essentially to get to that sort of high levels of trust there's a degree of sort of some exposure has gone on on can you know some mm. candid reveal has happened on route stories have been created you know probably often talk about stories but in a corporate world the more stories you have that you share particularly ones that hopefully take you out of the fairly mundane you get to a point where you just know that you're not going to be let down. Mm. And you also know that you've gone through many iterations of having a challenge put in front of you, not really knowing how you're going to deliver it. But again, the team kind of dynamic has constantly surprised and, and you know performed. And something that you mentioned at the sort of the intro to that five and six piece, and I think something worth just well, asking you to to get your take on, because the... One of the elements here is the extent to which I have to spend my entire life with the firm to create a high-performing team. So you mentioned around, you know, social events, working hard, and we, there may be some people listening who thinks that means I've got to to build a high-performing team. I've got to work late. I've got to be there the longest, and then I've got to go out and socialize with these people, and that almost make it my life. Where, in your view, is the the right balance? You know, there's a lot of firms I know who getting people out for an annual drinks is hard enough versus the other end where some people work 20 hours a week and or sorry 20 hours a day and you know flat out for those who are sort of listening to the point you made around building stories where do people start or how much is this a time for capability versus actually just doing some smart things will help lift you to that level unfortunately i don't think there's any sort of easy path to this and it does take a, a degree of invested time beyond the nine to five that said this doesn't necessarily all need to be kind of late nights you know and, and i've talked about quarterly escapes i think that's an investment that a lot of firms can make even if it's not quarterly frankly i think a number of businesses if they just took their teams away you know once or twice a year and just had a committed two or three days you know that they've sort of carefully architected put some consideration into that's a combination of work and and social and, and just some different activity it's it's just caring about the kind of working world beyond the sort of nine to five beyond the kind of standard serving the clients in a professional services space you know if you genuinely want to build a company a construct a team there is a deliberate focus that's required on that aspect it's just not going to happen by osmosis just doing the standard job and i think that's the point i was trying to find out like you say is you've highlighted escapes i mean i know from the places i've worked non-scientifically but the places where people socialize together, albeit once a month, there is a much better bond than between the places where people don't. And the same, you know, you mentioned around the totems, you get some firms where the marketing department does have pens. I'm holding one from a hotel chain at the moment, but every consultancy has pens, books, et cetera. But it's the the organic evolution. It's almost the why, why you're doing it, not the how or the what you've done is the sense I'm getting from you around that, that level five and six to really get up there. Totally, yeah. And again, it's sort of worth pointing out that you know clearly the artifacts are not the input, and they're the sort of evidential output. That's something that's 
interesting. So, you know, and it's certainly not on marketing output. But I mentioned one earlier, like the trump cards. I mean, you know, that came about because a couple of the guys in the team just thought it would be genuinely amusing when the team's, you know, roughly 50 strong, you know, yeah. pack of cards to to celebrate everybody's quirkiness. And so, you know, everybody's scored on different aspects. I think they were looky-likey as well. So everyone's got a looky-likey. And, <laughs> do, you, do you remember who yours was? Uh, do, you know, do you know, I think, <laughs> who was it? It was um, Arthur Daly. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit. Apparently I look a little bit like Arthur Daly. I hope that was about looks anyway, not my business stuff. So, yeah, it, but what it was doing was celebrating that, you know, this team is so close. We know everybody's sort of little quirks so well. We just want to sort of, laugh about them and celebrate them and the, the artifact that came out a pack of drum cards was just sort of almost a side piece it was the fact that the team had got to that point where they genuinely enjoyed and had that sort of level of humor you know one thing across all of the model and i think we've you've given really clear direction at each stage of how you can build this as a, a ceo let's say or someone running a firm there's almost a, an implicit element of you as the founder or leading team driving this and some of my listeners might be listening and thinking, well, that's great if you're an extrovert, you know, you're outgoing, you love going to these parties, to these uh, escapes, to these drinks. How is this different, if at all, if you're more of an introverted person? Do you, you obviously advise firms or sort of in a similar place to where Morehouse was? What do you find yourself saying to those leaders who are maybe, Dom, I'm, I'm just a bit of a quieter guy or a girl. I'm, that's not going to these big drinks. That's not me. I would say it's, it's got nothing to do with sort of um, extrovert, mm. sort of gregarious sort of natures. You're right to sort of identify that as being a almost a, a sort of a, a common inference that's, that's made. But you mentioned the word, I think, charismatic there. And for me, charisma is is not about that sort of extrovert jumping up on the tables. It's 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 much more about the sort of the very confident carrier of of values who who genuinely lives those values. And I think, when, you know, that authenticity in leadership is what is charismatic and that's what carries people so that, that doesn't need you to be the the life and soul of the party it does need you however to be vocal about what you stand for where you think the firm's going the clarity bit making sure people are clear about the the, the sort of values and principles in the organization and 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 sort of engendering that that sort of inner brand that i talked about so n- none, of, none of that is none of that is extrovert it's authentic i think is is, is probably the word i'm trying to emphasize Brilliant. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that because I'm sure there are people listening and I think that will be really useful for them. So I'm I'm conscious of time, Dom, and I know there is a second half to this, which is listener questions. So I, I think we've gone into some real detail on the paper. I'll include the paper that you wrote around the team and to tribe model in the show notes so people can go and read it. Both the, I think you, I've seen the business version. If there is the, the academic version with the heavier stats section, I'll um I'll include that as well for those who are more that, you know, that way inclined. But I think it, it's worth just pausing, you know, for those listening, what would your sort of closing bit of advice be on this team to tribe model? If someone's listened to this and thinking, right, I need to self-audit and then move my team you know, up that quadratic function, how do, what would you say to them? You know, I guess to degree with a sort of copywriting flourish, I titled the paper, The Most Important Equation a business leader that need ever know, but hopefully it's come across in this podcast, Nick, is I kind of mean it. So my, my sort of final piece on this would be, what's the, the so what's we've talked about. You can't change people's intrinsic motivation, but know how significant it is. And therefore, selection processes that filter for it, you really, really need to explore that, maybe have another look at that in your own team organization. And hopefully, <laughs> with some emphasis, I've illustrated why the high-performing team bit is really at the nub of all of this. And I would just say, you know, just become equally intellectually fascinated by 
the topic of team. I mean, mine is one but paper. There's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Just take a professional passion in working out what makes high-performing uh, teams tick. And that's the bit where you just need to stay completely focused on. Last episode, you gave some really good book recommendations. If anyone is interested, like you say, about reading more around this topic, you've, you've highlighted how important it is. Are there any other books, obviously, on top of your paper that you'd suggest people check out? So in danger of drowning you under a long, long list here, Nick, because uh, as you probably imagine, I, I, I get fairly consumed on this topic, but I'm, I'm just going to call out three books that have sort of jumped out at me and are sort of beyond the normal sort of, I, I guess, you know, fairly easy sort of platitudinal read. But the Five Dysfunctions of a Team is a, is a bit of a modern classic, Patrick uh, Lencioni. I just think it, he, he writes it in a very... Uh, very sort of easy to to, to read style. I think um, that's uh, yeah, nice read and very reinforcing. Hopefully, of a lot of what I've talked about. And I'm going to call out another book, which actually I would put a little kind of reader warning on. It's it, this is quite an academic book. I mean, very academic book in a, in a way. But this is a guy who is seriously deep in the topic of what teamship's all about. It's called Authentic Leadership by a guy called Robert Terry. Courage in Action, Authentic Leadership, Courage in Action, Robert Terry, which is a difficult read, but um, by some margin, probably the most considered book I've ever read on the topic. And then another one, which I think is just a classic and stood the test of time, is uh, guy, uh, General Slim Courage, which again, I think uh, he, he, I think it um, captures a number of radio um, speeches and, and radio interviews he gave. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really interesting book, particularly if you like your military history. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot for those recommendations, Dom. And I'll, I'll include those in the show notes. Hopefully, they're all still in print. So I'll I'll see what I can find on Amazon. And we'll. I hope my listeners find those useful. So we spent a, a huge amount of time and some really good insights around the Team to Tribe model. As you know, and as my listeners hopefully know, you were kind enough to to let me test out a new a new show idea, and that is ask Dom anything or ask my guest anything. This, say, this, oh, that's not this, this, this won't become a new podcast just with Dom. Um, he may create his own, but you never know. And so, thank you to all of those who who submitted questions. We, there's there's four that that jumped out, and I, it'd be really interesting to get your answers to. Feel free to to take them how you want. Give us a an in depth answer. Give us a short one. Say actually, I don't, I don't want to answer that. Whatever it may be, and I'm going to really read them as I got them with just slight changes to make more sense in asking you. So the the first one is, you've obviously given a lot of advice in this episode and the last one. If you could go back and give your 30-year-old self just one piece of advice, what would that be? Struth, um, I would say I would reinforce the point, again, I touched on in our first chat, Nick, of you know, the importance of viewing success life in a, in a much broader perspective than just the career you know, professional services lens we're looking at this through now. Because, again, as I touched on, really success in this dimension is for absolute naught, you know, if you've let a whole load of other bits and pieces go. So I guess, you know, I, I, I it's not that I wouldn't have known that as a 30-year-old, but I think setting out at that point where, uh, you know, you're ready to throw yourself into the lion's den and, you know, it's, it's kind of you're in the zone and aren't you paying your mortgage, you know, young children, you know, life's pretty crazy that, uh, you know, it wasn't that I was lacking any uh, motivational appetite for that challenge. And I think if anything, it's sort of people need a little bit of saving from themselves. So I think, as you know, I was fortunate and probably just about saved myself from myself, but uh, it was only because, you know, some good friends and good counsel on my shoulders. So I think I probably wish I sort of reinforced that message. But you know what? I actually... Also, think my thirty-year-old self has probably got a lot to teach my 
<laughs> my near 50-year-old self in a way. I think we always presume that, you know, with age comes wisdom and it's, it's a sort of one-way street that, but actually I almost think asymmetrically I'd rather listen to my 30-year-old self and say what would he be telling me now? And okay. I think what he would be saying is, you know, remember that whole bit about, you know, uh, whoever has the most stories wins and, you know, just, just making, uh, keeping life's rich adventure ticking over. And yeah, I think, you know, I think that's an interesting another way of looking at it. Maybe as a side note, we should, uh, we should write letters to ourselves in 10 years time. And if, if I were to do that, I think I would be saying, uh, 60 year old Dom, are you still out there doing trips and adventures? And if not, why not? I want to hear why. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I think that's a really interesting take. Like you say, what can, what can you take from your younger self when life's changed in 10 years time and you may have forgotten some of those things that helped drive you when you were younger. So, so thank you very much for that. And um, one of my listeners listened to the TED talk, they've listened to our interview and they've highlighted that something you're obviously passionate about and see as a, a core part of your success is, is planning and, and written plans, writing down what you want to achieve and, and to an extent when you want to achieve it. And the question really is about how you balance that. So at what point do you find that a written plan becomes overly rigid or prescriptive? Uh, and how do you leave room for for that creativity and spontaneity as part of life? This is a sort of common, I, I guess, sort of mildly veiled critique of, of plans. And I understand it, completely understand it. And I, I, you know, I hear it a lot in the term, in the context of business planning, but I guess also here we're talking about it in the context of personal planning as well. And I think again, I'm, I'm going to emphasize that you know when when I talk about plans, what I'm talking about is not just some fairly flat, one-dimensional in, in a business context might be you know PNL budget, for example. You know, I often speak to firms and say, "Have you got a plan?" And be yeah, and they point to an Excel spreadsheet. What I talk about here is it's it's more about the sort of strategic analysis that's gone on in the background. So again, regardless of whether you're talking about building out a company or whether you're talking about your own personal kind of career and life plan, fundamentally, some level of situational analysis where you've sat down and thought about well, what's going on in the world at the moment, what, what are the drivers, you know, what, where's the sort of the opportunities and the challenges out there? And, and then you've kind of gone into a level of diagnosis beyond that to say, well, if that is the case, and you know, with my set of talents and capabilities or corporate assets, what is our approach that sort of makes sense of that and actually takes us off on an approach that you know takes us closer to our stated outcome? And a plan, therefore, when you write it, and I think there is real value in writing it down, is not the fact that you've got this document at the end with all the words on it. It's the fact that you've deliberately taken yourselves through those precursor thoughts. And it's the thinking that is the key, key bit. The plan is just evidence that you've done that and you've brought it all together in a coherent artifact. So for me, and it's a good question, I'm not, I'm not seeking to demean the question, but it's actually, once you've done that thinking, actually you've got the tram lines on which amazing adventures and creativity and spontaneity can sort of take place. But it doesn't in any way stifle that, it just means that it's, it's within the context of some outcomes that you've intelligently thought about and within a strategy that you've given some due consideration to. And you know, the word you use there, the tram lines, I- it feels like that's actually quite an important nuance to to highlight. So tell me if you agree or tell me if I've got this completely wrong. But what you're saying in terms of planning is obviously the thought element first. And, you know, one of the memorable quotes from our last podcast was people spend more time planning their holidays than they do their lives. So so that's, you're, you're already ahead of most. It, it feels from that point around tram lines that when you talk about planning, you're not talking about this day I'm going to you know, day by day planning or week by week planning. It's more a holistic, okay, 
in a year's time, I want to have had a story. I want to have had an adventure. And life, those are the tram lines you set and life follows down those as opposed to, I'm not going to go and do that because my plan is to do something else today. Is that is that right? No, totally. And in some ways, I mean, let's just take a sort of fairly trite example, but you might say in the broader sense, you know, I know I want to, I want to create some adventures and, I, you know, therefore I need to take myself off on one or two trips a year. If you've put some kind of dimension to it, it's more likely to sort of therefore happen. You may have no idea what that is, but at least then you know when you're down the pub and you're having that conversation in the coffee shop and somebody throws a sort of a crazy idea at you, you know, do you know what? I, I, I said I was going to keep myself honest to one or two trips a year and, you know, why not two weeks in Mongolia cycling across the the salt plains or whatever it is you're up to next year. But you've put some sort of construct to the the relevant context of that mm. serendipity and creativity. Yeah, no, really good point. And yeah, I am looking to cycle across. It's a frozen lake in Mongolia. So if anyone <laughs> fancies that next March, <laughs> drop me an email and we can have a chat. So... Last two questions, and this one is a bit more business focused. So, and it's about being specializing and being a specialist versus a generalist. So, working within a larger firm, and I'm, I'm reading this verbatim as close as possible, working within a larger firm, you often specialize in one area. So, you might be a project manager, an accountant, a, a marketing executive. Whereas, often working in an entrepreneurial environment, you might do all of these roles. You know, like you said, when you've started Morehouse, it was you and you did. HR, you did BD, you did delivery. Um, when building your own firm within the remits it allows, would you recommend trying to, to stay specialist and thereby allowing you to, to perfect and hone your craft, so let's say consulting, delivery? Or should you be happy to and almost embrace working across a number of areas and, and going for a breadth of experience and becoming more of a generalist? I'm going to slightly dodge your question and say it's it, it's a bit of both. I mean, it, the, the classic sort of, uh, I think it was McKinsey sort of phrase, isn't it? The T-shaped consultant summarizes it. Mm. So the T-shaped consultant being the, you know, the vertical bar being the specialism and the and the horizontal bar being the generalism. Uh, you know, I think that's that's almost at the nub of what you need to have to, to build your own firm. So, in some ways, though, I I and I guess akin to many entrepreneurs, I, I, I'm a bit of a generalist and actually intellectually get very uh, yeah very itchy and and seek to sort of move my brain onto different topics I, I i don't like to sort of linger so i'm inherently sort of i guess generalist in that regard and i i loved actually some of the challenges of the early stage company build because it was taking me into many new areas in some ways actually we started the podcast talking about method grid you know i'm entrepreneuring in a completely new digital sort of tech space and you know frankly there's a lot i don't know and i just find that fascinating so Yes, I think you you absolutely need to be a generalist, but hold on to a specialism. It needn't it needn't be all of the specialisms of the firm you you've built. It, it probably will be one of the central ones, or certainly one of the early ones. So you don't need to sort of necessarily therefore specialize in every incremental build on the capability set that's kind of developing. But fundamentally, building a professional service firm, you've also got to be the the, the surveyor of quality and, and and you know set that sort of exemplar quality assurance standard. So that's got to stand in one area. But beyond that, I think you very quickly, therefore, you're not therefore, but very quickly do need to become a, become a generalist. And actually, it's becoming a generalist, building the horizontal bit of the T, which, you know, is the really fun bit. Brilliant. Well, thank you. So in answer both to an extent, and I'll, I'll include, I'll, I'm sure I can find online the uh, McKinsey T-shaped consultant model, because I like the analogy. It's not it's not one I'd actually heard before, but I'm sure that's, I think it's really useful. So thank you. And then very last question. And this is one that we're both Tim Ferriss fans and 
we hear him, he asks every one of his guests. So it'll be interesting to hear how yours, you can probably already guess, but it'll be interesting to hear how yours varies from that, is morning routines. And do you have any specific morning routines? And if so, what are they? I guess I do. I mean, I, I'll sort of describe this morning's routine, I guess, and that's a fairly, it's fairly established, I would say, as a weekday routine. If I'm honest, I, I tend to sort of put away from it of, of, a, of a weekend because I'm also, uh, yeah, I'm also really interested in, in, in what people do, uh, Nick. And I think actually I found myself speaking to a lot of people about sort of morning habits, particularly. It is, it is, it is interesting. So, so this will be my morning. I sort of wake about six forty-five. I, uh, well, I'm being really. I'm going to be pedantic here. Clean the teeth. Wakes me up. <laughs> grab a um, a pint of water. Actually, I wrote a podcast, and maybe I'll point your notes to it, which um, talks about some of this. Yeah, grab a pint of water, and then I come to my desk and I do a couple of things. I guess I do a few things in sort of 10, 15 minute blocks. So block one would be a really sort of simple journal of uh, I use something called day one which is a really simple journaling app and I do a quick sort of what is it I'm seeking to achieve today you know what are the two or three outcomes if I just do those nothing else has been a successful day a bit of a reflection maybe on the day before but you know really high level sort of journaling and I, I do that in conjunction with something called I use another app called things which is uh, from the getting things done Michael Allen book, I think I mentioned. So that's kind of essentially, I, I look at my, my my calendar, what's in my things app and using day one journal, I sort of bring it all together and as I say, summarize what's the key key outcomes for the day and and, and what's in my today set in my things app. So that's one 15 minute block. Um, I grab 15 minutes to read a book and you can see my bookshelf here. It's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> and the only way I can slowly move through it is just literally chipping away 10, 15 minutes each morning. And I think, you know, what I find is 10, 15 minutes equals 10, 15 pages. And slowly but surely, I sort of grind my way through that bookshelf. Just on that point, so we're sitting in Dom's office and Dom's got, you've got a huge amount of books on that shelf. Do you start at one end, read the whole of that book, go on to the next one? Do you dip in and out of books? No, I definitely, with that habit, I definitely have a, a an order. But each time I get to the end of the book, I'll survey the... Uh, <laughs> burgeoning bookshelf and, and, and I, you know as I said Nick I'm a sucker if anybody recommends a book to me if, if I hear a sort of recommendation two or three times I sort of quickly uh, jump mm. to Amazon and buy it so there's a number of books here I'm keen to read but every time I finish one I'll, I'll sort of uh, recalibrate which one is it I want to read next because quite often just something's come up in life or you know recent conversation or you know you're working on a particular project that moves that order around yeah so but I but once I'm start once I've started a book I'm pretty good at grinding my way through that one and then I will grab 10, 15 minutes. And again, I think I may have mentioned podcast one, uh, sort of an app called Headspace, which is like a silence the brain for 15 minutes because I think like a lot of people, I have a really busy, <laughs> busy head full of to-dos. And whilst I've got some of it out and it sort of lives in my things app, just teaching myself to silence the brain for 15 minutes is uh, fine. You know, and I, again, I've only done this in, in latter year and only because I've spoken to so many people who've, really advocated it. It didn't really come naturally to me, I, I guess, at first, but um, it's a really important part of my uh, my working day now. And then, yeah, from that, I'm pretty fired up, shower, breakfast, and and, and, and at the desk. But if, that, if, if I do that, and I'll do that sort of most working days, unless I'm off somewhere early doors, and it really feels like, you know, the day's, the day's well set up. Brilliant. And you mentioned you picked bits up off, you sort of, you asked this question to a lot of people, meditations, one bit, did the other two bits, were those things that you'd heard two or three people say are oh, great, so you built them in, or were those organic things you tried? 
how how did you form that routine? I think you know just a combination of reading articles, you know, mm. podcasts, chatting to some many sort of folk I admire, and I, I, I've definitely sort of sort of played around a bit with it. I, I used to, if I'm honest, I used to try and also get a a morning stretch in, and and I just what I find now though is I'm, I'm so raring to go once I've done that set. I you know I'm just I'm I'm too fidgety when I'm sort of trying to do a stretch as well. I wish I could do it more often. It'd be a great habit to uh, keep in there. So that that that's kind of in some ways been ejected for not enough time in the day. So yeah, I think it's you know it's important, isn't it, to play around with it and work out what works for yourself. But that, that having I think having a routine, almost regardless of what's in it, I mean, recognizing hopefully you put some constructive habit in there is yeah, is definitely to be encouraged. Oh, brilliant. And it's a question I want to and need to ask more, but I find myself timing out too often. But the other guests, so I asked Adrian Betteridge, who's the managing partner of Bringer and formerly my boss. And he also, sim- interesting to hear the similarities. So he also had the journaling. He also had the meditation. So Dom, thank you very much for this. It's been great to catch up for round two. Thank you for sharing your insights on Team to Tribe, and I'll put that out on the show notes. Thank you also for answering listener questions and giving back some insights into some other areas that we we didn't get to touch on last time because we spoke about a whole raft of things, but as always, there's things that you you just can't do because we don't have 10 hours, and I, people already tell me that this podcast should be shorter. I don't believe them, but... Screw uh, I haven't helped you with that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Don, all that's left to say is, is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure as always. Brilliant. Cheers, Dom. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.